This episode is brought to you with support from Lyft. Lyft is continuing its leadership in creating a cleaner, healthier, and more equitable future with a bold commitment to reach 100% electric vehicles used on the Lyft platform by 2030. The shift to EVs will create opportunities for drivers to lower costs and keep more of their earnings. Transportation currently accounts for the largest portion of greenhouse gas emissions in the U.S., and so Lyft is committed to leading the way to decarbonize its platform through vehicle electrification. Learn more at liftimpact.com electric. The fact that it's the first U.S. financial regulator to take up the, the concept of climate risk and invite expertise from so many different uh, market participants is really, I think, commendable. Climate change poses a major risk to the stability of the U.S. financial system and to its ability to sustain the American economy. That's the top-line takeaway from a landmark new report released by the Commodity Futures Trading Commission. The CFTC is an independent agency of the U.S. government that regulates the commodity futures and options markets. It's made up of three Republicans and two Democrats, all of whom were appointed by President Trump. Last summer, the commissioners voted unanimously to produce a report on the effects of a warming world on financial markets. The result is managing climate risk in the U.S. financial system, a report authored by dozens of analysts at major banks, asset managers, environmentalists and academics, among others. While the core finding isn't entirely new, the CFTC stamp carries significant weight. In this episode, the fifth in the Ditched miniseries, we speak to an author of the report and investment manager at the country's biggest public pension fund. Welcome to Political Climate, a podcast presented by the USC Schwarzenegger Institute. I'm Julia Piper, your host, a contributing editor at Green Tech Media, and a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. The financial world is starting to take climate change seriously not just by acknowledging its existence, but by conducting in-depth assessments of climate risks, altering investment strategies, and calling on regulators to act. Storms, wildfires, droughts, heat waves, and floods are costly. And these costs affect insurance markets, the mortgage industry, agriculture, pension funds, and other entities. A world racked by frequent and devastating shocks from climate change cannot sustain the fundamental conditions of supporting our financial system, concludes the Commodity Futures Trading Commission report released on September 9th. BlackRock, the world's largest asset manager, said earlier this year that it sees climate change as a clear systemic risk and is committed to partially decarbonizing its investments as a result, which we discussed in more detail with Justin Gway in an earlier episode of the Ditched series. Meanwhile, banks like Morgan Stanley, Citi, and Bank of America have agreed to tally greenhouse gas emissions financed by their lending portfolios. So we're seeing financial firms start to take voluntary actions. The CFTC report indicates that there could be some policy action too. As we discussed in an earlier episode with Stephen Rothstein at Ceres, there are lots of tools that financial regulators can employ to help mitigate climate risk. Several major banks participated in writing the CFTC report and broadly endorsed it, while also highlighting other areas in need of further study. Vanguard, one of the world's leading investment management companies with approximately $6.1 trillion in global assets under management, participated in writing the CFTC report too. Banks and asset managers aren't exactly known as environmentalists, 
and yet they're working to measure and mitigate climate risks. Robert Litterman, chairman of the CFTC committee that produced the report and a founding member of the investment firm Kepsos Capital, told the New York Times he was shocked that the report came to be. Quote, this is members of the entire community involved in financial markets saying with one voice, this is a serious problem and it has to be addressed. Divya Mankikar is an investment manager at the California Public Employees Retirement System, or CalPERS, an agency that manages pension and health benefits for more than 1.6 million California public employees, retirees, and their families. Divya specifically works with CalPERS' sustainable investment team and works to shed light on integrating environmental, social, and governance factors across the roughly $400 billion fund, the largest public fund in the U.S., I got on the line with Divya last week to learn more about the findings and recommendations inside the CFTC report, which she helped write, and to better understand how the financial sector is responding to a growing body of climate risk information. This episode comes amid New York Climate Week and the 75th session of the UN General Assembly, where the financial sector is under pressure from the public, politicians, and shareholders to commit to long-term climate goals. That pressure is only expected to intensify in the lead-up to the UN climate negotiations in Glasgow, Scotland, in late 2021. In fact, that pressure is already mounting. Just days ago, New Zealand became the first country in the world to make climate risk reporting mandatory for banks, asset managers, and insurers. So far in the Ditch series, we've heard from leaders in philanthropy, advocacy, and academia, addressing the origins of activism around fossil fuel divestment, and a growing body of work on addressing climate risk. In this episode, we get the perspective of an investor. Here's what Divya had to say. To give our audience some context, can you explain exactly what CalPERS is? What does that stand for? And, and what do you work on there? Sure. So CalPERS is an amazing institution. It stands for California Public Employees Retirement System, and it was set up to provide retirement stability and pay medical benefits on behalf of the public employees of California. And currently we have over 2 million members between the retired members and those who are currently working. Within CalPERS, there are a few different divisions. I work within the investment office, um, which provides the investment returns that make it possible for CalPERS to uh, complete its mission. So our sources of funding are from employers, from the employees themselves, but the majority of what we pay out comes from the investment returns. And so in order to meet our mission, we have to achieve a 7% uh, target investment rate of return. And currently we're 70% funded. So what I work on is looking at sustainability risks to help the fund um, have a greater likelihood of achieving that target rate of return and of course getting to full funding. And within the sustainability risks, I would say my specialization is more on climate change. So you just laid out, you know, a big mandate. How and I guess why did climate change 
start to factor into your work? Why did CalPERS decide to engage with this, bring you on to work on this specifically rather than, you know, just focus on investment generally? Why did climate change become a specific aim of, of the fund? Sure. So I think when I joined in 2015, CalPERS had begun looking at its fiduciary duty as uh, a broader mandate than some other funds. So in 2013, actually, CalPERS adopted investment beliefs that established that investment management requires stewardship of three forms of capital, financial, physical, and human. And on the physical side, if you read into the sub-beliefs, we specifically call out environmental risks and climate change. And at that point, there were sort of the beginnings of regional um, initiatives to engage companies on particular climate risks, um, but really it was an emerging field. So I was brought in to help bring a data strategy into that work so we could translate environmental and climate change metrics more into our investment decisions. And so I was hired as the first uh, ESG, Environmental Social and Governance, sorry for the acronym, but um, ESG uh, lead. And so starting with those 2013 investment beliefs, you know, the investment office began to see environmental risks popping up in different parts of the portfolio and decided in 2015 to sign on to the UN PRI's Montreal Pledge, which is relevant for the climate change discussion because what it asked is that signatories measure and disclose the carbon footprint of their portfolio. Uh, and I previously specialized in carbon footprinting on behalf of one of the lead uh, ESG research firms that had really developed capabilities in that area. So in 2015, pretty much my first task within for the first two months was to lead a team in footprinting our public equity portfolio. One of the things that we learned from doing that is that out of the 10,000 companies that we invest in across 47 markets, about 80 to 100 of those are responsible for half of the carbon footprint of our public equity portfolio. So we took those results to pure funds to say, are you finding similar things? And sure enough, you know, a lot of asset owners have um, similar investment strategies and had similar concentration of uh, at least emissions risk. Uh, and that led us to a couple of different things. One, uh, in 2016, we created a five-year sustainable investment strategy where we called out quite a few different ways of trying to tackle climate change risk exposure across our total fund. And the other is we really started working with investor networks uh, in a more concerted fashion to develop global partnerships so that we could work with other peer investors um, to address climate risk together, largely through engaging companies and public policy uh, advocacy. I'm curious to know what it's like on the inside in terms of the framing and how these kinds of steps are received. Is this considered like 
you know, a California thing or stemming from an environmental movement, the idea that you'd be factoring emissions and climate risk into your investment decisions? Or does it really stem from numbers, data, Excel spreadsheets, taking any, you know, environmental initiative out of it? Or is it a blend of the of the two? How, how would you des- describe the framing? So I think when we looked at, for example, one piece of research, the carbon footprint, we started to do more research into uh, the transition risks, as they're called. So looking at companies with high emissions or systemically important carbon emitters, we call them, you start to understand that, you know, of course, the world is changing. Um, BP just put out their energy outlook where they actually are forecasting peak oil sooner than the International Energy Agency. So we started to deepen our understanding of the transition risks in our portfolio, how shifts in the economy due to either market changes or technology changes or policy changes could shift value between industries or between um, companies within an industry that were managing climate risks better or worse. Uh, so that's really the starting point. Our, our approach to climate change is really grounded in the economics and looking at the risk of climate change to the value of uh, companies in our portfolio. And then we also, um, in the past two years, have deepened our understanding of the science. Uh, we're the first client of a unique partnership between Wellington Management and Woodwell Research Institute. Wellington Management is a big asset manager. Woodwell has expertise in climate science, and they have been helping us to see that uh, not only are there so many different kinds of climate risks, we've seen seven of them mapped so far on a global basis, but also that in many geographies, there's more than one risk that is present at the same time. And then they've also been helping us to translate that into how does that affect, for example, our real estate assets? So we have a large real estate portfolio and those are fixed assets. They're long duration contracts that we have or relationships that we have. And so we look at these different physical risks and how they might um, impact parts of our portfolio. So Putting those two together, you're really looking at the science and the economics of how climate change may impact us. And then, of course, to get back to your earlier question, you know, living in California and serving the membership base that we do, we are acutely aware that climate change is not just a long term, you know, potential risk, but it's something that we see present today. And we're so grateful to our firefighter members and other members who are keeping us, you know, CalPERS employees and the state of California safe. So I think the the answer to your question is it is a blend, though our investment approach to climate change is grounded in science and economics. We can't deny that we're also feeling the impacts of climate change on our personal lives as well. Yeah, it's so interesting to hear this data layer to it. Obviously, we know climate science exists, but I wouldn't I don't think that the average American, for instance, knows 
much about it. They're not not spending their time in academic papers, but to now see it expressed in the business realm, I think it's really shining a light on the science and data in a a new way because it really affects people's, you know, retirement in, in this case or or homes and things like that. The, the dollar and economics element here, I think, really makes climate change real in both a scary way, but perhaps a way that we can now understand and mitigate now that we have more information. And so I want to turn now to a recent landmark report that came out that you are an author on, along with several other industry leaders. This is the Managing Climate Risk in the U.S. Financial System report from the U.S. Commodity Futures Trading Commission. So again, you were selected as a member of the Climate-Related Market Risk Subcommittee, which helped author this report. Can you just take a step back and explain what was the main takeaway from this and and why do you think it has been heralded as such a landmark uh, piece of work? Sure, happy to talk about that. The CFTC's climate risk report was really, uh, I was honored to be part of the subcommittee. And I would say it was surprising, even as a member who's been working on this, you know, for years (laughs) within the investment community and even with some corporates and previous roles that I've had. Firstly, it drew upon a wide range of perspectives. So we had multiple industries represented, NGOs, academia, different types of financial institutions. And I guess the first surprise I had, which is a good surprise, was in the very first meeting when each of us were doing our intros and talking about what we would like to see from this process, the vast majority said, we want to articulate the need for meaningful carbon pricing. And there was no kind of debate on the value of that to each of our institutions. So that was, you know, a wonderful thing that we found. But really, stepping back from, you know, the the content of the report, the fact that it's the first U.S. financial regulator to take up the, the concept of climate risk and invite expertise from so many different uh, market participants is really, I think, commendable. And in the first line of the executive summary, um, you know, we say climate change poses a major risk to the stability of the U.S. financial system and to its ability to sustain the American economy. So that statement, for example, and the entire report got unanimous approval by all 35 members. I think that is also really uh, an amazing outcome that, (laughs) you know, we we didn't, I'm an optimist, but I thought, okay, there's going to be some some things we might come across as we go through this process. But it demonstrates to me how from different Uh, perspectives of where you are in the market, whether you're a company or an investor or in academia, you can see the magnitude that climate change may have on your organization. Yeah. So you mentioned that there were a lot of different members involved with the report. Uh, Without putting you in a political position or anything, can you say that this report was diverse in its authors? Uh, was it bipartisan? How would you describe who was involved? Would you say that that it, it was broad and inclusive in that way? I would, in terms of the perspectives of, you know, different folks on the committee, we had banks, 
uh, asset managers. I was the only asset owner, but still across the committee, we had multiple, if, if you put us together as financial institutions, um, each of us has a different perspective, actually, on how we're exposed to climate risk, although we all agree that we are exposed to climate risk. Um, and similarly, across industries, there's Dairy Farmers of America, there's energy companies. So I wouldn't say that this is, um, you know, coming just from an environmental perspective, but really everybody came to the table ready to talk about how uh, climate change impacts their commercial model as well as, you know, other perspectives. From a layperson perspective, it's interesting to see this landmark report come out under the Trump administration, which has not necessarily prioritized environmental action, but having this financial lens, and this financial point of view come out under the CFTC uh, addressing climate risks in such a direct way. Uh, it was interesting to see that. Although we do have to note that the bipartisan CFTC commission that approved this study and, and made it possible has not officially signed off on all of the findings. So there is that distinction to be made, uh, although the subcommittee has. So one of the report's central messages is that climate change poses a serious risk and that regulators and private sector players need to better monitor, analyze, and quantify those climate risks. What does that really get you? So when you measure and monitor, what does that exactly allow you to do? Ultimately, does that mean that you move out of fossil fuels? Trying to connect the dots between measuring and monitoring and the value of that versus what that actually means in the real world in terms of shifting money around and into what assets? And does that necessarily mean low carbon assets? Or is it just about understanding the risk that you have and adjusting from there and being transparent with your investors and your community? Sure. So I would start by responding to say that um, most companies are not kind of static and fixed in time. They put out strategy, the market responds to that strategy, and it decides, you know, if that company is likely to increase or decrease in value, different market players, you know, will, will perceive that information differently. Um, and so what we're saying through this report is, among the items that we would like to see disclosed by companies that we invest in is their strategy to identify and manage climate risk. And what that does is inform the market, you know, is this company thinking deeply about this subject? Is it materially exposed to it? Does it have a strategy to mitigate that risk or increase the resilience of its supply chain or you know, think about uh, demand shifts and how it might uh, respond to that as there are pockets of demand that are shifting away from high carbon um, products. So all of these types of information and really the best um, uh, sort of framework that we've found that puts, to, puts this together succinctly is the Task Force for Climate Related Financial Disclosures. So we actually put out our first, it goes by TCFD, which is, you know, less of a mouthful. We put out our first TCFD report earlier this summer in June. Um, we wanted to road test the framework. And we do also engage companies through an initiative called Climate Action 100 Plus, so that they disclose their exposure to climate risk, um, you know, under the rubric of this framework. 
And really what we see the value in there is because that framework looks at governance, strategy, risk management, targets, and metrics, it's a comprehensive view of how a company is positioning itself to adapt to climate reality and also ideally uh, reduce emissions for those that are systemically important carbon emitters. I think from going through the process of TCFD reporting ourselves, we certainly learned a lot. For example, we learned that our portfolio, just as our investment approach, seeks to reflect the global economy and market returns, our investment portfolio tracks to the same emissions trajectory as the broader economy, which is 3.2 degrees. And so in order for us to drive down emissions in our portfolio, we are engaging the top carbon, the systemically important carbon emitters um, through Climate Action 100+, and we're engaging in public policy, for example, through the CFTC report. And what we're looking for the, from companies is to go through that same kind of analysis of how is their governance set up? Will they be able to deliver on, do they have climate goals and will they be able to deliver on it because they have board oversight, you know, through market cycles or through um, different trends? Are they thinking about it, climate change deeply at a strategic and a risk management level? And then what targets have they set up? And all of that information we expect will inform the investment community and valuations of those companies so that we can then allocate capital taking that information into account. Whereas right now, we have just these kind of pockets of information. I think uh, the TCFD did an analysis last year that 3.6 on average of the 11 indicators that they um, recommend disclosure on are actually disclosed. That's really not enough information for us to integrate climate risk as deeply as we would like, you know, as asset owners and long-term investors. So that's really the goal is to get data and corporate reporting to be so extensive that we can look at it across the portfolio. That is really helpful to understand, yeah, how the call for data and transparency actually then results in action on the on the on the part of investors just to put a real world scenario together i'm going to make this up but would it be something like you know uh you mentioned owning property so you would understand the climate risks of these real estate investments and then maybe discuss with those companies how they could factor in greater resilience or even energy efficiency or something like that that would reduce their emissions at the same time would that be the kind of follow-on discussion you'd have with more data Exactly. So, for example, with our real estate and infrastructure investments, we invest in those through managers and utilizing the physical risk research that we have, the Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmark or GRESB data that we have. So different pockets of uh, data, we engage those managers to understand if that um, asset is exposed to physical climate risks, and if so, how they're planning to improve the resilience or mitigate that exposure. And um, that's been really helpful to engage with our managers 
it's an ongoing kind of iterative process because ultimately you have to be able to translate that risk into how does this impact financial value? And that's where there's a lot of um, innovation right now because it's an emerging field. So, um, you know, there's there's a lot that needs to be kind of bridged in that gap. Um, But yes, that's a good example of how we utilize climate data to engage our managers to ultimately understand the risk of long-term assets. You know, I want to take a second on two terms that we've we've discussed in the course of this conversation. One is physical risk. The other one is transition risk. These are both brought up in that CFTC landmark report that we discussed. Can you just take a moment to describe what those are for our audience and, and why that, that framing is important to think about? Sure. So this framing, um, we anchor our understanding of it to the Task Force for Climate related financial disclosures um, report that came out a couple of years ago. And it's a very useful framing. As I said, we kind of road tested it in doing our own TCFD report earlier this year. And I think it really held up. So transition risks have to do with the risks that come out of the transition to a lower carbon economy. So as technology becomes more affordable, for example, around electric vehicles or battery storage, renewables, all these different types of technologies that can help to consume energy or provide services like transportation in a lower carbon way, that shifts value between different companies depending on you know, who has the, the best technology, the best process for marketing that technology, etc., um, similarly, there are market and demand shifts, uh, particularly as people begin to understand how their consumption may increase or decrease emissions. We've seen, you know, increase in demand, for example, plant-based protein. Uh, and then, of course, there are policy changes that create a context for how we consume energy, how we travel, um, you know, different elements of the economy that have an emissions impact. So all of those things are sort of bundled as transition risks. Physical risks are a separate thing, but these two are are related. Um, So physical risks are, they can be acute or chronic. So acute could be, for example, like a hurricane. Chronic could be extreme heat. Um, in In addition to those there's sea level rise, there's wildfire risk, there's drought. So there's all these different forms of physical risks. And um, it's not just one weather event, but a shifted pattern in the climate um, that impact, for example, a company's supply chain, or um, in the case of chronic events, you know, we, we see an impact on farm worker communities as extreme heat, um, you know, either literally impacts the agriculture and the growing season, but also, of course, the public health um, impacts on those communities specifically and the the degree to which they can work outside. So physical risks are separate from transition risks, but really the, the faster the transition to a lower carbon economy occurs, the less intense the physical risks will be. This is what the science shows from, of course, the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change 
research that has been updated every few years for the past uh, several decades. So we're defining terms here. Another one that is big, and I'm honestly not sure what the actual definition is, and it seems to be evolving, is ESG, environmental, social, and governance factors that the investment community is now factoring into their decision making. How do you define that term? Because again, I understand it's really broad, and this could have a lot of implications. For instance, a fossil fuel company may may be uh, considered an ESG investment by some metrics, other and other scenarios it may not be. So how are you thinking about that? There are actually some pretty common themes across ESG standards. So I guess I should first say that the factors that are considered environmental, social, or governance and uh, material to financial decision-making there are a number of standards that have been developed in consultation with investors and companies and civil society organizations to codify what ESG means. And recently, actually, in the past month, um, there was an announcement by some of those lead standard setters that they're going to be working together to harmonize their standards and provide the market with even greater clarity. So I think it is a broad term, but actually, when we look at it, there are very specific issues that we're looking at, and those are specific to industries, to geographies, and that's what we're kind of tracking and doing research on. Of course, within each of those categories of E, S, or G, there's a different depth of data that we have access to. And so we spend a lot of time actually engaging on data and corporate reporting with regulators and standard setters to get to a place where we have mandated sustainability reporting, again, similar to our conversation earlier, so that we can have a view on exposure to ESG factors across the portfolio. And then that allows us to bring those considerations deeper into our investment process than we can if we just have it on a small portion of the portfolio. The other thing to note is that within an industry, there is, of course, difference, just as you would have with any other financial factor, in how particular companies that might be competitors perform on any given ESG factor. So you could have uh, what's thought of as a sector neutral or an industry neutral investment approach that looks at how individual companies, for example, in the fossil fuel industry perform on ESRG and then reweights the investment in those companies based on ESG factors. That's something that a lot of asset managers have been uh, testing recently. So to circle back once more on the Commodity Futures Trading Commission report that you are an author on, it has some takeaways here for policymakers. One is addressing regulators and, and noting that these regulators, like the federal, uh, uh, like the Fed, have the tools already to enact and to adopt and factor in climate risks into their work. Uh, the, the report notes four areas in which this could happen. And separately, there's a discussion of, of a carbon price. But first on the regulatory side, what would you note there about what those regulators can do right now within their existing authority to, to address the topics that we're discussing today? So that was another one of the um, 
kind of pleasant surprises of going through this process for me, I would say, each of the members brought different specializations to the discussion. Um, and so I'm not a financial regulator policy wonk. <laughs> um, and I learned a lot from my colleagues on the subcommittee about this. But one of the key findings was there are many ways with existing regulation that climate risk can be factored in to enhance that uh, risk oversight function. For example, one of the key recommendations is that the Financial Stability Oversight Council, um, which the CFTC is a member of, take up this topic. There are also other regulations, um, for example, the SEC Climate Disclosure Rule uh, that we recommend is updated, taking into account you know, the 10 years of history of disclosure related to climate change from companies that the SEC regulates. So I think it's not, um, it's not as much of a stretch as some might think for climate change to be integrated into the existing regulatory regime, both in terms of the actors and the, the regulations that we have on the books. It, but it does require sort of thoughtful effort to understand climate risk, to look into the science, um, and to identify, you know, financial institutions, key market actors, um, to continuously um, partner with to develop a system where we can monitor and manage climate risks. Back to the data. <laughs> data, data, yeah. data. I want to get in a question about um, equity. This comes up in the report as well. It talks about how climate change impacts ultimately determine the economic welfare of American households and often disproportionately burden low to moderate income and in historically marginalized communities, further undermining environmental justice. So how do risks to these communities get factored in when we talk about this from a financial perspective? You know, you have a, a duty to your fund, to your you know, the retirees that benefit from this program. How do you then also factor in the broader American populace that may be, you know, adversely impacted by by climate change? How do you think about that? Um, so what we think about is how are companies um, performing in terms of their relationship with communities in which their operations are based, um, human rights in their supply chains, diversity of their workforce, diversity of their board, uh, and then more recently combining the environmental issues with uh, social issues, looking at a just transition. So how, as, as all these transitions occur, um, given the reality of climate change, how are those communities and those workforces, uh, how is a company interacting with them through this transition? So there are a number of things that um, can be done. And actually, in the recent benchmark that was publicized last earlier this week, actually, um, by Climate Action 100 Plus, we're putting in metrics for monitoring uh, companies' attention to the just transition. I would say that, um, you know, just as we are exposed in our portfolio to so many different types of climate risks, the tools to reduce the risk in terms of engaging on emissions and engaging on policy 
have benefits beyond just to our portfolio, um, but to greater society as well. And so while our approach is based on the economics, the financial risk to the portfolio, and the science, because that's the fiduciary duty of CalPERS, I do think that it has broader implications that have the potential to benefit um, the American population's exposure to climate change. Excellent. This really riddles throughout the entire economy, this work. It's so interesting to better understand it. And you've done an excellent job of breaking it all down. Divya, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you so much. I really appreciate being invited to talk about these issues. They're so important to CalPERS. Um, Something I forgot to mention at the top is that we actually consider climate change to be one of the top three risks to the fund. So any opportunity to explain why and what we're doing on this and really to invite others to partner with us on this work is very welcome. So thank you. As Divya noted, the CFTC report we discussed in this episode begins with a fundamental finding that, quote, financial markets will only be able to channel resources efficiently to activities that reduce greenhouse gas emissions if an economy-wide price on carbon is in place at a level that reflects the true social cost of those emissions. In the absence of such a price, financial markets will operate suboptimally, and capital will continue to flow in the wrong direction, rather than toward accelerating the transition to a net-zero emissions economy. The report notes that a price on carbon must be designed to ensure that the burden does not fall disproportionately on low- to moderate-income households and on historically marginalized communities. It also notes that pricing carbon is beyond the purview of financial regulators, That job, the authors say, rests with Congress. And that brings us to the end of this episode in our Ditched mini-series. Thank you for listening. Remember to subscribe to Political Climate wherever you get podcasts so that you can catch all episodes in this series, in addition to our regular Thursday shows. And if you have a moment, please leave us a review. I'd love to get your feedback on the Ditched series and learn more about the kind of content you want to see more of. I'm Julia Piper, signing off.